0: South Pole, and I was in Christchurch, New Zealand, and I heard the British radio come on and say, President Kennedy has been shot, dead, in Dallas, just that way, I'll never forget the phrasing of it. I was with a congressman, we had all been down, the pole. we went up the street, see what we could do to get some more news, and about two and a half, two to two and a half hours later, we found a man selling extras on the street. I bought the paper and I looked at it. At that time, I had been in Pentagon for nine years working on special operations. That means clandestine operations, military and the agency working together. I'm pretty familiar with this sort of thing. And on the front of that paper was a picture of the school book depository building where the alleged killer had been. And I looked at it, windows were open. You know, when we protect the president, we go there ahead of time. We make sure the building overhead, windows have been closed by people that are trained to do that. Another thing, the thing said, three bursts of automatic weapons. Now, I don't know, Congressman, whether that's what you heard or not, but that's what the reporter said. That's not what the FBI said. The FBI said, bing, 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 from that man on the sixth floor, and that's all there was to it. Three bursts of automatic weapons by a reporter that was on the scene. What bothered me more, not then, but later, was the bottom third of that paper was a whole story of Lee Harvey Oswald. Been to Russia, with, with the Marines at Atsugi, <coughs> and I read Atsugi. Atsugi was at Far East headquarters, the CIA. I've been there many times. In fact, I was there before the surrender of Japan a couple of days before. We were get, getting prisoners of war out. It's an underground base. The only Marines we take to Atsugi in a military and, and CIA work, like on the U-2, all that sort of thing, are the cream of the crop, or they don't get there. While Oswald was at Atsugi, we... St- we tried to help a rebellion against Sukarno in Indonesia. He was one of the men picked to go down to the Indonesian campaign. He was no dud. Don't let anybody kid you. So when I got home, I checked that biography of Oswald. Pretty interesting by the time I got home. I got home eight days later. And I found out that the police had not even charged Oswald with the crime by the time that story was in the new zealand newspaper now i understand how fast news can go in communication but i mean who put it all together where did they get the news of this random 24 year old uh even though he did have a uh, unusual history at least we hear that afterwards before that with a pretty exemplary history to tell you the truth i've been at tsuki during the period when he was there i never met him but i know the quality of people we use there when you add these things up Failure to have the military unit there that provides protection for the president in any city where he goes. I've gone to Mexico City for that purpose. The failure of the Secret Service to be adequately stationed throughout the city. And, and this story written before the police even knew who the killer was. Here the writer of this story knew all about him before the police did. How many things do you, the autopsy reports have? mess. How many things do people need to wake up? That's what all Stone's trying to do. He wants the American public to know that since 1963 we've been told a lie. Lyndon Johnson, before he died, said, and it's for right over in your library, Atlantic Monthly, July 1973, I've always believed there was a conspiracy. Our ex-president, Lyndon Johnson, and he said Oswald did not do it by himself. And he said, we have been operating a Murder Incorporated. That INC on the end, Incorporated, means a murder organization in perpetuity. Unfortunately, as an individual, I can report to you that during my work in the Pentagon, I have been required to work (coughs) among that situation where people have been murdered by something that we maintain. In the 70s, Senator Church pulled that information out of the CIA bit by bit even though there were perjury committed. Now, you've got to be serious about this movie. It's not a joke. People tell us we've got the history wrong, we've got all this other stuff wrong. I'd like to see anybody in this room or anywhere else lay the line of history down that came from that movie and, and, and tell me that it's wrong. Might be a, a change in how the film was presented. After all, it's a movie. I mean, what, what do we see in, in movies anyway? Do you know how many troops were really in Vietnam? and 58,000 were killed, let alone all the other people that were killed. By the time it was all done. By the time Vietnam War was over, 2,600,000 men had been rotated through Vietnam. We don't very often think about that. We dropped more bombs from aircraft in Vietnam, in Indochina than all of World War II. People don't have any idea What Vietnam really got to be after the death of Kennedy. Well, in all of those big numbers that I'm talking about, the money that rolled out went at least to $570 billion. Now, if Kennedy had not died, he would not have put those people there, not just the 500,000 that were there at any one given day, but the 2,600,000, and if the people didn't go, they would not have had to spend the $570 billion. Well, there were, as, as General Eisenhower said in his great speech, which was the opening of the, right. of the stone film, that beware of the military industrial complex and when you threaten such a complex with the potential of 570 billion and then you're going to bring it down to nothing you are bound to get some hot-headed decisions and the removal of the president is not a very difficult thing to do just think of the list of presidents who've been wounded shot at killed since world war ii when we don't use things in a factual basis and really know what's going on because then the public is so badly confused plus in debt (laughs) confused and deeply in debt okay you're
1: watching movie night extravaganza our continuation of the this is revolution takeover and of course I somehow vacuumed in deep state Cuba to join us for this conversation.
2: I was always here.
3: <laughs>
2: but now it's you can also, see me.
1: You you still have the uh CIA streaming app, right? That you know it lets you go beam yourself onto anybody's uh channel that you want to. Um that's what I,
4: that symbol is for in front of him.
1: I uh Exactly I said, don't that- look
2: at it too long or you'll be parallaxed. <laughs>
1: Par- paralyzed or parallax, and that's why I brought in JG Michael from <laughs> Parallax View Podcast. Um, you see, that's the you know, I did it. I did it perfectly there, flawless. So,
5: so I got to ask, why are we starting the show with clips of uh, Joe Biden?
1: <laughs> <laughs> it, he sounds like Biden. Like he really like. He, I don't know. The, I think I think that like the comedy world suffers from not having someone that can do a, a good Biden impression, like. So many people did good Trump impressions, but like no one can really do a Biden impression because he's such like a normal, like normy sounding guy. And I think it's pretty amazing that uh, L Fletcher Poudy out of everyone can do like the perfect, well, has the perfect Biden voice.
2: I, I like it's the true. idea that there's always a Biden, you know, like every age has its Biden. The, um, in a thousand years from now, um, there'll be like a, a silver headed pale guy speaking that exact same voice, that exact same tone, but it'll be in like future Mandarin.
3: Listen,
1: Jack. All right, yeah, exactly. I don't. I got the equivalent I got of hair today. And, uh, and Alan Dulles used to take the hair from my legs and rub it down, and he'd say, Listen, Jack. Listen, Jack.
4: <laughs> Listen, Listen Jack. Jack. This Klingon corn pop was a bad dude. <laughs>
1: Lived across the galaxy, and I just went over there, and I kicked his ass, and I said, "Listen here, listen here, Klingon." <laughs> we had a, we had a, we had a nice moment with uh, me and Kuba on the, this is Revolution stream that you weren't there for because you had other things to do, um, <laughs> where we did a '50s accent back and forth. <laughs> yeah, we Had like a, we had like a '50s accent. Um,
2: the transatlantic yeah. sound off.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's crazy that that's not an organic accent like it's like people had to literally go to schools to train for that and i mean in england they still have people go to schools to train for like that oxford theater style like no one i
2: i had a um i met i was hanging out with a bunch of british people in japan once it was like a foreigner party and there was one guy from wales and these english girls were giving him a hard time about his accent and um this english guy who his parents were professors and he spoke proper oxbridge english he called out one of the tormentors, and he's like he, that's just the way he speaks you talk like this just because you had elocution lessons so that's like still a thing you can get uh yeah that know, party like,
1: where you met uh is that party where you met gene
2: yeah no 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 yeah uh, <laughs> that party was in kurdistan
1: all right. The the, I the first time I ever heard of Gene was because of the uh the article that he co-wrote with Michael, um, in Jacobin where they wrote about uh, the Kurds and I remember like and then I remember going back and looking at all of Michael's Jacobin articles and being like, damn, like they they co-write everything, which I mean makes sense because Michael was you know uh, you know he was incredibly um eloquent in the way that he spoke but he was uh, you know he he had dyslexia. So I think it was hard for him to sit down and write. So like the co-writing
2: makes sense that way. is extraordinarily supportive of people he likes and believes in.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's why I've gotten to host This Is Revolution for the first time. All right. We're uh, joined by Jim uh, Eugenio, who has written several books on the JFK assassination, including uh, The JFK Assassination and Destiny Betrayed. And he is also the co-founder of Citizens for Truth about the Kennedy assassination, and the writer for Oliver Stone's documentary JFK Revisited. How's
3: it going? All right. Um, I, I should tell you, I'm not getting very good sound. Okay. Um, all right. Is there a?
1: Let me see. Let me see the audio levels and stuff. Um, sometimes there's mic settings that. No, it seems like it's good. Um. Is there? Can you uh, turn up the volume on on your computer or anything?
3: Press what?
1: Just turn up the volume on your headphones or on your computer. It just be the volumes low. Well,
4: since since this is going on, I should just introduce myself. Um, I'm yeah, I'm Dan sorry, I left
1: you out of co-host. that. <laughs> <laughs> Jay Andrew World, co-host, <laughs> illustrator, um, you know, creator of of all kinds of what beautiful illustrations.
3: default internal microphone or the default internal speaker. Um, well,
1: I think it's I think it's speaker if it's Can you change the uh the internal the, the speaker to your headphones? Is there an option to do that? Like if there's settings, you might be able to turn it to your headphones.
3: That's worked. Yeah, that's the internal speakers. Okay.
5: Okay, perfect. Right. sound great on my end.
3: So I'm, I'm getting mm-hmm. them right through the head- headphone now. Okay. Okay. Great. Awesome.
1: Great, um, great. So I wanted to I wanted to start off, um, uh, you know, talking to you because you've written so much about Kennedy and the Kennedy assassination, and I wanted to get your thoughts on. Um, so I'm going to play the the part of the. Uh, the JFK Nixon debate, and I know that you've written about this, where um, you know Kennedy kind of has the intel from uh, Alan Dulles, getting kind of like like these secret, these kind of semi-secret, I guess, um, like briefings from him, and he kind of plays like that dirty trick on on Nixon, where he knows that Nixon can't talk about uh, what's going on with Cuba and their and their their policies there. So during the debate, um, Kennedy uh, brings up Cuba and. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about how Kennedy went from you know being a cold warrior and being like running running his campaign on being incredibly tough on Cuba, to kind of being like this,
3: you know, for the Cold War anyway, like this peace candidate. Okay, that's that's essentially Jim Douglas's thesis for his book, JFK and the Unspeakable. All right, M- mine is a little bit different because I believe that. Kennedy's foreign policy was formed essentially by about 1957 when he gives the the great Algeria speech, Okay, about how the United States should not be backing a French empire in the third world. All right. Then what happens with, with Dulles is that Dulles essentially bushwhacked Kennedy over this whole Bay of Pigs thing. Okay, and he sold them a bill of goods saying there's going to be all these uprisings. We're bringing all these rifles in at the Bay of Pigs because we're going to have 30,000 people, you know, defecting to our side. We're going to have the element of surprise. Castor will never be able to get any kind of artillery or mortars to the front. Okay, and so this should this is uh, I feel really good about this. As good as I felt back when we overthrew our bends in 1953. Although Dulles always denied he said that. Okay, but Kennedy said he did say it. Okay. Is that right. is that the
1: is it um Iran or is it um uh Guatemala oh, no. where fifty four is
3: fifty-four is our bench.
1: Well there's the, so there's I made the a mistake, thing. it's
3: not fifty-three, it's fifty-four is our bench.
1: There's the famous okay. moment where um John Foster Dulles, I think it's I guess it's Iran that this happens right before they overthrow our bends, um, where he's purring like a cat. Kermit Roosevelt has that famous quote where literally he's looking at john foster dulles and he's vibrating like and he realizes that he's essentially purring like a cat right after the first uh, cia coup
3: yeah I've, I've actually heard that story myself okay you know and and well that's see that's basically who those guys were okay you know they they were wall street lawyers the Dulles brothers you know sullivan and cromwell and that's the way they looked at the third world all right for their clients you know some of the biggest industrial clients in the world. So anyway, so Kennedy goes ahead, and he approves this thing, all right. And he it, immediately—it's a disaster because none of the things that Dulles says are going to happen happen. It, plus plus Kennedy had backed out of the D-Day airstrikes, all right. And so, what happens is he says, we're only going to have a second strike if we have a beachhead on Cuba. Now, since it's a disaster from the beginning, there was going to be no beachhead on Cuba to launch a second strike from. All right. And so, what happens is that it's essentially, if you read the declassified Kirkpatrick report, it's over in about 10 hours. All right. Because, unlike what Della said, It wasn't a surprise attack. There was a detail there. They alerted Castro and he got the mortars and the artillery to the front within 10 hours. Okay. So, uh, and plus tanks. All right. So, Kennedy sees what's happening and he understands now that he's been duped and he now has to save these guys. So, he sends in what they call a cap. Okay. To protect the withdrawal from uh from from the island all right but there's over a thousand that get arrested and held in detention all right and so well it's so interesting what happens after this I I, I find this story so compelling yeah um, Kennedy, so, um, Kennedy put his brother on the White House panel to and because he, he wanted him to go after Alan Dulles yeah. Okay. He wants to get to the bottom of what really happened
1: here. Yeah. There's. They kind of see it as a Kennedy side and a CIA side, right? Um, right. During the panel. Right. Like, uh, um. Sure. So I. I well. I wanted to start this this conversation off by playing the the uh, JFK and Nixon um uh, debate at the beginning of this um because I think this I think this is a good contrast point um during Kennedy's campaign he goes to the right of Nixon on uh, on Cuba he goes to the right of Nixon on the Soviet Union and I thought it would be interesting to uh, watch that because as much as you can like hear it or read it in in books it's like incredibly striking to watch the actual uh, clip take place so, so we'll, yeah. we'll
5: play the we'll play the clip yeah go ahead
6: 1955 the uh, resolution commits the president in the United States which I supported to defend uh Formosa, the Pescadores, and if it was his military judgment, these islands. Then the president sent a mission composed of Admiral Radford and Mr. Robinson to persuade Chiang Kai shek in the spring of 55 to withdraw from the two islands because they were exposed. The president was unsuccessful. Chiang Kai shek would not withdraw. I referred to the fact that in 1958, as a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, I'm very familiar with the position that the United States took in negotiating with the Chinese communists on these two islands. General Twining in January 59 described the position of the United States. The position of the United States has been that this build up, in the words of the president, has been foolish. Mr. Herter has said these islands are in defense. Chiang Kai shek will not withdraw. Because he will not withdraw, because he's committed to these islands, because we've been unable to persuade him to withdraw, we are in a very difficult position. And therefore, the president's judgment has been that we should defend the islands if, in his military judgment and the judgment of the commander in the field, the attack on these islands should be part of an overall attack on Formosa. I support that. In view of the difficulties we've had with the islands, in view of the difficulties and disputes we've had with Chiang Kai-shek. That's the only position we can take. That's not the position you took, however. The first position you took when this matter first came up was that we should draw the line and commit ourselves as a matter of principle to defend these islands, not as part of the defense of Formosa and the Pescadores. You showed no recognition of the administration program to try to persuade Chiang Kai-shek for the last five years to withdraw from the island. And I challenge you tonight to deny that the administration has sent at least several missions to persuade Chiang Kai-shek to withdraw from these islands. Under the agreement. testimony of uh, General Twining and the Assistant Secretary of State in 58. Mr. Nixon uh, shows himself misinformed. He surely must be aware that most of the equipment and arms and resources for Castro came for the United States flowed out of Florida and other parts of the United States to Castro in the mountains. There isn't any doubt about that, number one. Number two, I believe that if any economic sanctions against Latin America are going to be successful, they have to be multilateral. They have to include the other countries of Latin America. The very minute effect of the action which has been taken this week on Cuba's economy, I believe Castro can replace those markets very easily through Latin America, through Europe, and through Eastern Europe. If the United States had stronger prestige and influence in Latin America, it could persuade, as Franklin Roosevelt did in 1940, the countries of Latin America to join in an economic quarantine of Castro. That's the only way you can bring real economic pressure on the Castro regime, and also the countries of Western Europe, Canada, Japan, and the others. Number three, Castro is only the beginning of our difficulties throughout Latin America. The big struggle will be to prevent the influence of Castro spreading to other countries, Mexico, Panama, Brazil, Bolivia, Colombia. We're going to have to try to provide closer ties to associate ourselves with the great desire of these people for a better life if we're going to prevent Castro's influence from spreading throughout all of Latin America. His influence is strong enough today to prevent us from getting the other countries of Latin America to join with us in economic quarantine. His influence is growing, mostly because this administration has ignored Latin America. You yourself said, Mr. Vice President, a month ago, that if we had provided the kind of economic aid five years ago that we are now providing, we might never have had Castro. You want me to comment um, on
3: that? You want me to comment on that? Um, yeah, for sure. Okay, it's it's you know it's, it's 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 almost funny to watch that. Okay, because when Kennedy gets into office, he doesn't do any of this stuff. <laughs> he has a perfect opportunity. To invade Cuba, at the in fact, when he calls Nixon for advice, when the Bay of Pigs is falling apart, what does Nixon tell him? Declare a beachhead and and invade. And Kennedy says, "I don't have a beachhead." Okay, well, invade anyway. Okay, so and so Arlie Burke is just happens to have this air cap carrier fleet ninety miles off the coast of Cuba, and he's trying to talk him into going ahead and launching an airstrike you know, with these with these jet fighters, all right? And Kennedy says, no, we're not going to invade, okay? Now, why did he have to say this? Because on August the 9th, okay, I think it was August the 9th, no, April the 9th, he had said in public there will be no American direct intervention in Cuba. So he was essentially trapped by his own words, okay? And so that's why he didn't do it. As for the influence in South America, Kennedy's, one of his best and most interesting programs, I thought, was the Alliance for Progress, okay, in which, if you recall, he has this huge conference down in Uruguay at Punta del Este. Nobody ever seen anything like this before. And all the representatives from Latin America came to this was essentially an economic bazaar in which Kennedy said, we'll make the loans to you out of the treasury. And we're gonna give you very low or zero interest rates. Bring us your ideas, okay? And we're gonna build your infrastructure and we're gonna try and build a working class or a middle class, you know, with the money. Except Kennedy didn't realize he was thinking 20 billion. Okay, by, by the time it was uh, that conference was over, He said, I think it's going to be more like 60 billion it's going to take for this. All right. So that ended up being more or less, you know, his strategy and tactics in in Latin America. And of course, we all know what happened uh, when Castro decided he couldn't trust the Russians after the missile crisis. He went ahead and he said. Can we talk about a detente? Okay. Yeah, so and, and he reached out, charges. and
1: he reaches out to uh, Kennedy through all right. of these kind of um, channels, including like a you know journalists that have talked to him. Um, and Kennedy kind of seems receptive, even like a couple weeks before his death, seems incredibly uh, receptive to Castro's the idea of détente with Castro. Right. Um, I wanted to bring Cuba into this because you know he's he's worked in uh, you know deep state intelligence and I. <laughs> I wanted to get his thoughts on, you know, the limits of what um, Kennedy probably could have achieved, or um, ideas about this.
2: Well, one thing that one thing that's very interesting about this period is that um, right now we take the American deep state, the um, constellation of intelligence agencies of large permanent Pentagon with uh, close to a trillion dollar budget, um, secret surveillance programs, all of this is sort of taken for granted. And it's easy to lose sight of the fact that this hadn't been fully institutionalized. You hadn't had multiple generations of uh, institutional growth and entrenchment and uh, when Kennedy was still of, alive, which is
1: kind of the Oliver Stone um, thesis, right? Like this is kind of yeah. the exit ramp. This moment, you, uh, Kennedy getting killed, kind of it, it is the is the one exit ramp that could have existed from the institutionalization of these kinds of things.
2: And one, so that's a that's a significant difference, and right, that's a difference between that historical moment in time and this historical moment in time. Um, there, but there's also the um there's a flip side which is if you're going to shut down the, this nascent cia this uh, military industrial complex this you know clandestine intelligence apparatus and if they're too dangerous they're too independent they're out of control and you want to shut them down then you need to have somebody else that can do the uh protection and uh security that they would otherwise provide. Otherwise, they'll just kill you because that's kind of what they do, and you're threatening their very existence.
1: And in some ways, so, giving Alan Dulles a bunch of free time um to sit there and plot, you know, whatever the fuck yeah. no, you plot. If know- you're
2: gonna purge somebody, you have to purge them, right? You can't just retire them but leave them um freedom to operate and with all of their contacts and their informal networks of power intact yeah and the um the difference between now and then like i think one salient difference is that in back then it was the Dulles brothers and um certain clandestine operators in different parts of the world that were um you know loosely connected with one or two nodes between them. Um, and they had a kind of invisibility from the rest of the government. Now that community is, has multiplied and is entrenched everywhere. So um, you have SOCOM, you have an actual U.S. Department of Defense command, which is just dedicated to special operations with a, uh, military bureaucracy, generals in charge of it, um, and every department, DHS, um, Treasury, um, the DEA, you have, has their own security wing. And you even have um, local police departments taking on paramilitary and intelligence functions.
1: Yeah, and and we kind of talked about this um, on the This Is Revolution stream, touched on it briefly, like the idea of kind of the Pinkertons as an original version of that kind of apparatus under corporate rule. But I mean, at the time, you know, with presidents like McKinley and like other, you know, like the the presidents of that era, like, you know, there was no real dividing line between corporate power in the United States and political power. I mean, I think right now you could argue that that's the case as well, but like, you know, starkly more so at that time. Um, building up what was going to become the security state.
5: I was just going to add to that. Um, <clears throat> you know, Peter Dill Scott, who's another uh, very interesting researcher into JFK's assassination amongst other things. I mean, he helped popularize the term deep state and deep politics in, in the American lexicon. Um, he's often talked about, you know, things like the underworld and the overworlds of power. And I've always found that an interesting metaphor Uh I think we have a really revolving door system between uh, the sort of private world of, you know, military contractors and whatnot, and uh, you know the public sector, uh, the, the government agencies. And I think we see that now in, in ways more than we did uh, when Kennedy was in office. And I think we've sort of reached the uh, the apex of that sort of system in a lot of ways. The yeah. I, I think that
2: um, and, and that's an excellent point. And when we talk about the underworld, when it came to things like, um, you know, moving drugs, moving people around clandestinely um, and, you know, deploying violence domestically or uh, securing information illegally, you had to rely on a criminal element. So you had pretty well documented connections between American intelligence and different forms of organized
5: crime. Yeah, now, Operation Underworld
2: and
1: now, Operation Mongoose—the you know the, the removal of Castro um, that Robert Kennedy fully embraced uh, at the time of its inception.
2: And i mean, in World War II. Lucky Luciano uh, became a anti-fascist hero by reconstituting the Sicilian uh, mafia as, uh, as a means of destabilizing fascist Italy. But now so much of that activity has been legalized in one way or another, you know, right now who needs drug smugglers when the Pritzkers can produce legal, um, legal opiates and hand them out, um, by the handful that, and similarly so many financial transactions, which were previously criminal, are now perfectly above board that it becomes easier to officially marry the overworld
7: and the underworld.
1: You know, there's a um, what show really, really kind of expresses that really well. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have watched the FX uh, Fargo continuation of, of the Coen brothers one that um, that Noah Holly did but season two of that kind of has um, all these characters acting to acquire like a a trucking empire. And at the end of it, the, the one guy like Mike Milligan that survives everything um, is expecting like a promotion, like to become like some kind of, he he thinks of himself as like a King almost.
2: A godfather.
1: Yeah. And then he's not a godfather. He gets brought up to an office and the end of like his, his promotion is that now he works in like an office building um, doing like corporate trucking stuff. So I, I felt You're like... are going to need
2: to understand logistics very well. We've got a new system coming in. Yeah, and... no,
1: exactly. Like, it's it's incredible because he's, he thinks of himself as like this conquering hero coming back and they're like, okay, so we're going to set you up in this cubicle. <laughs> I think that's a that's a really amazing view of the institutionalization mm-hmm. of these, um, you know, kind of just bringing like criminal empires into the corporate system.
5: You know, I, I wanted to add to that and I, I know it's your show for us, but I wanted to ask Jim about this, because I feel like uh, since we were talking about the movie uh, JFK, uh, you know, now there's even a revolving door between the sort of military industrial complex and even uh, Hollywood. And I know Jim has written uh, expansively about that, uh, a whole chapter devoted to it in one of his books. Jim, would you want to comment on that?
3: Yeah, but I just want to comment on one other thing. When Bobby Kennedy found out about the CIA mafia plots, he was shocked. Okay, he said, wait a minute, I'm going after these guys and you set up this alliance without telling me? Okay, and they said, don't worry about it. We're gonna shut it down. Okay, after the meeting. Well, the the CIA knew they weren't shutting it down. Okay, they deliberately lied to him because it continued with Rosselli and Harvey. Okay, and and by the way, they knew it was continuing with Rosselli and Harvey. All right, this is so interesting. know and it's something i kind of stumbled upon okay it is there's a woman named patricia jenkins who wrote a wonderful little book called the cia in hollywood all right and i came across it by kind of accident and it gives you the whole history but the very interesting part is that robert gates wrote a memo saying that you know something we don't We don't really have an outreach in the movie business and i think if we could have talked to oliver stone before he made that movie maybe we could have influenced him all right and so what they did is they now set up an office in hollywood all right and this went on i'm this is off my memory but i think i'm about correct for something like 13 years And the CIA was actually writing scenes into these scripts, all right? And they were suggesting revisions, et cetera. And I have it on background, which I can't tell you because there was a lawsuit involved where they completely rewrote a whole screenplay, all right? And that's how powerful they were. And it wasn't with just, you know, small pictures. It was like really big movies, like The Sum of All Fears. Right, in which they re- rewrote Ben Affleck's role in, in, in that film. And finally, after about 13 years, the guy retired. They brought in another guy who worked for about two years. And then he said, we don't need this office anymore because it's self-infiltrated now. We have so many friends in Hollywood now that we don't have to do this anymore. So they shut it down. Okay. and And, and, and it worked.
2: And also the Defense Department, and That's also into true. that role. Yeah, I uh, when I was working um for the air force, I was at the promotional photo shoot for Captain Marvel, which was on uh, Travis Air Force Base in California, and you had the um, the cast being photographed with real life uh, female fighter pilots, uh, because it was seen quite. Accurately as an extraordinary branding and recruiting tool for uh, for the Air Force in particular.
3: Right. That's by a guy. I will, I, correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't his name Dick Shrub or something like that? He ran the military office and he essentially said, I have to see the script before you we give you any help. Because, you know, it's not you, you can't rent jet fighter planes. Okay, or things like that, all right? And then he would reserve the right to say no if you didn't change the script according to what he wanted. And there, there's actual cases where he shut down a whole movie because they wouldn't change the script, right? So yeah, it's very powerful, these forces in, in, in movie land today.
5: I I was going to say, so one of my uh, friends who does research into this subject of uh, military sort of interference in film projects is a guy by the name of Tom Secker at Spy Culture. And it's really amazing some of the stuff he gets from FOIA requests. There are movies that uh, got rejected, um, you know, that that requested help uh, from the Pentagon with their films. And you would be amazed at the movies that the the Pentagon were uh, apparently afraid of. One of them is none other than the comedy cult classic uh, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. They literally, the, the the military rejected that movie because they said, oh, it makes fun of the military. The, the military, though, that shows you how much <laughs> they are involved in film. Like, they were scared of a movie. Attack of the, Attack of the Kill- oh. Yes. I'm not even, you can find the FOIA documents on it at Spy mm-hmm. Culture. It's incredible uh, just how tight-leashed they are. With Hollywood, you know, they're like, nope, can't do this, can't do that, can't do this, and it is really wild.
2: It's not that surprising. Um, In World War II, the Nazis, the Third Third Reich, demonstrated the power of uh, film as a propaganda medium. Uh, The Soviets, uh, especially in the early period, um, were also very good at it, and
1: to the point where Soviet, you know, Soviet films like uh, Battleship tomkin or whatever like Emkin. they still get yeah they still get shown in like every single film class that you really go well, to like
2: that's just because uh, the commenter also infiltrated hollywood but um the um the united states needed to have a couldn't have an overt propaganda ministry churning out official uh official products but it also couldn't let hollywood do whatever it wanted so Especially the whole um, model of kind of infiltration, revolving doors, creating um, informal networks of influence that allow you to get the result you want without leaving fingerprints behind. Um, it, it makes sense both as the way that the CIA operates and also how you do Machiavellian statecraft after World War II
4: my my understanding this actually kind of uh, goes back to 1927's film Wings um where the uh they actually uh, borrowed the US army's uh, equipment and um they actually paid for it if i remember correctly and then uh the US army saw like a increase of um recruitment after that uh so so they started to realize like like the what the power of film was and started to uh, I think I believe that was about the time they actually started created the uh, the, the office we're talking about. Um, if I remember my history correctly,
1: and there's it's really well documented that right now, like as Cuba said, like the Defense Department has offices within Hollywood that still exist. That um, like the Marvel movies obviously have like a military uh, coordinator that that tries to you know make their movies more realistic and pretty much anything that needs to get um, produced. At one point, Common Dreams. Um, which is, you know, a pretty, you know, a pretty good publication that's, like, left liberal, um, did a expose on the fact that um, Seth Rogen and James Franco did that, uh, the interview.
5: The interview, yeah, the one yeah. about uh, North Korea. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, so they had a guy who was a former Obama administration, um, like, foreign policy advisor that joined their script writing group, like, kind of got pushed in by the studio and was, like, workshopping all of these scenarios like how would you actually kill Kim Jong Un but he was like a he was like a defense he was like a defense contractor that had been like planted within their screenwriting group to like workshop these things to like piss off the north Koreans in, in the best way like or in the you know like in the easiest way possible and like so thinking about how even their kind of like dumb stoner comedy um routines are infiltrated like insidiously by the defense department is pretty crazy
2: oh. And it's for me, the most, um, the most notable situations are when the same production has both a defense department and a Chinese communist party, um, (laughs) supervisor attached to it. Like the transformers movies, the, those actually have to play to both audiences. And the remarkable thing is that they succeed. You can produce, um, like, soft entertainment propaganda that satisfies Beijing and Langley.
1: Yeah. I mean, all of the Marvel movies, you know, sometimes they make them edit out scenes, but, like, that kind of they have the same, I think, setup. Um, Because, like, those are the movies that are going to make literally billions of dollars by going to China and literally billions of dollars by being played here. Um, I guess, so bringing us back to JFK and uh, both the movie and um, his assassination. I have the uh, so I have a clip of Jim Garrison, who did the um, who you know the Oliver Stone JFK movie is is based around his investigation, and uh, I I have him explaining his case, and I thought this was really interesting because you don't often see like his the actual you know person behind um behind a movie like this.
5: Well, 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 hold on, hold on. We did see him in uh in the yeah, movie he, he JFK. Was,
1: as Earl Warren. <laughs> yeah, which is which is really interesting because I remember I saw this and I was like, "That guy looks really familiar," and then it clicked for me when you said that—that that, like <laughs> he he played Earl Warren and, and uh, yeah. But all right, so so here it is.
7: However, rather than a something more solid like somebody who'll swear they've been seen together, any one of these uh, actually, this is what you call circumstantial evidence, and your question is is certainly. A good question to ask, but the answer is that circumstantial evidence is actually, uh, uh, to a to, 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 uh, man that's practiced law, circumstantial evidence is actually more binding and harder to get away from than, than witness evidence, because sometimes the eyes can be mistaken. Uh, you say, is this coincidence? Any one of these factors of correlation could be coincidence, but the steady accumulation of them is not. To sum it up, is it? It is impossible that they did not know each other. How wide is the conspiracy? It is finite in the sense that it has limits. It is not a, such a huge thing that it is unsolvable. On the other hand, it is considerably uh, wider, I think, than the average person might have assumed. Uh, the best way to describe the conspiracy, and uh, I guess I'll have to be blunt about it, come to this: the major. The major factor in the conspiracy which made it work was the use of, of Minutemen.
3: How many Minutemen, Mr. Gasson, are involved as far as you know?
7: Well, I, I can't possibly speculate on that without hurting, hurting uh, opposition, except to say that uh, there were uh, uh, Minutemen in, in, the, in the Dallas area and, and some in, in, the, in Louisiana that, uh, that coordinated on these, this, this operation as individuals and it was uh, extremely well financed. There were individuals in the Dallas Police Department, uh, like a grapevine coming down the side of the building, which had relationships with each other, and also relationships with the individuals who killed the president, who killed uh, Tippett, and who killed Oswald. And this structure is what allowed it to occur so effectively because it was a pre-existing secret structure of individuals who were trained with arms who were militantly opposed to what President Kennedy was doing. This was the ambush that the President was in. He was shot from at least three different directions, which is perfectly obvious from the medical testimony, although the, the final conclusive evidence has been concealed, naturally, autopsy photographs. But he was shot from at least three different directions in the ambush, and there was no way for him to have survived.
3: Well, you maintain that Oswald did not fire a shot that day. Why is Oswald
7: a part of the plot? Didn't he fire too? Well, first of all, Oswald was not part of the plot. Uh, but secondly, he did not fire a shot at anyone, not only on that day. He never fired a shot in the uh, preceding year or in the preceding two years or since he got out of the Marines, as far as anyone knows. A number of the indiv- individuals who, who accomplished the shooting uh, were previously connected with the Central Intelligence Agency. Many of them connected uh, in their training in Florida. And uh, uh, those are some of the individuals whose names we have, and I judge by now they, they know we have, have their names. Uh, the, the, the thing which seemed to bother the United States and, and caused a major world power to participate in, uh, in such a lowly fraud, such, such an indescribably low fraud, was the fear that uh, the reputation of the United States or the Central Intelligence Agency would somehow be damaged when it came out that former CIA employees were involved in the assassination and that individuals uh, with control over Oswald, CIA employees were involved and that Oswald was working for the CIA. So the United States government participated and one of the greatest lies in history in order to save its face.
1: So, yeah, I think one of the most interesting um, things in, in that video is kind of the use of, like, I, I guess what we call now, like, concern trolling. Like, basically making sure that, like, like oh, how many shooters were there? Like, who was involved? Like, using facts, kind of, um, exact facts to kind of, bludgeon one of these theories down when not all of the information can really be either put out there because of their court case or not all of the information can necessarily be known it doesn't really matter who um who killed Kennedy as in you know pulled the trigger it matters more as Oliver Stone puts it like you know um the why like the why gets like the the exact facts kind of um you know distract us from the why and you can see within that within that interview because that the the same interviewer interviews uh, Jim Garrison, but also interviews Clay Shaw and lets him do like an incredibly sympathetic um, in the same special, I believe, like an incredibly sympathetic. Um, oh, I could couldn't have done this, and
3: like doesn't question him on the
1: just details.
5: softballs him entirely, right? Yeah. yeah. So
3: is, is, isn't that the one where he asks him, "Have you ever been associated with the CIA?" Yeah, and he says, "Oh no, have you ever worked for the CIA?" Oh no. Yeah, and okay. I and I have and I have
1: that to play in a little bit. Um, I have that that clip. That's the last one I I wanted to play. Um, Shaw was a great liar, you know. <laughs> well, he doesn't just say he doesn't just say oh, like I would never. I wasn't associated with the with the CIA. He says I'm a New Deal liberal, like I'm I'm the Roosevelt type of liberal, and <laughs> I respect I respected Kennedy tremendously. He's a man with, and I think Tommy Lee Jones is a really great uh, way of playing him when he's like he has panache. Which isn't what the actual Clay Shaw says, but um, I voted know. for
4: Obama twice. Yeah,
1: <laughs> exactly. No, like I would have voted for Obama a third time if I could have. Like that, yeah. that's a that it's like a perfect rendition of that. But then at the, the other side, um, someone like uh, Jim Garrison, who really is crusading for the truth, gets this kind of um intensive concern trolling, uh, to use like you know the term that we would use now, where it's like oh, all right, well, then who was involved? Um, it's like, you know, exactly what are their names? How many shooters were there? Like these incredibly detailed questions that maybe he's not going to be in a position to answer and, the and you know, not asking the question to actually investigate the truth, but to make him seem uncredible.
3: Well, and, see, uh, the thing yeah. is, uh, when, when, when Garrison said stuff like that back in 1967, I mean, that was going over the heads of so many people who just didn't know what the heck he was talking about, you know? And and to try and make something like that saleable, and I believe, I'm not sure, but I think that guy's from the BBC, and that interview I think was in April or May of, of 1967, before the Playboy interview. I think the Playboy interview didn't come out until October of that year, in which he was allowed to really you know, talk freely, etc., cetera, and make himself understandable, you know, but something like this at that point in time, I mean, Josiah Thompson was still counting bullets in Dealey Plaza. All right. And Kerosene is talking about who was actually killing Kennedy and why, you know, so. You there's, know, that, it, there's that famous, uh,
1: I think it's CBS interview that he talks about in On the Trail of the Assassins, where they finally track him down, um, you know, in, in New Orleans, they talk to him. They let him talk for like, he gives like the six minute explanation of the case, why he believes that, you know, um Oswald wasn't the killer, why, you know, he believes that there was a conspiracy. He gives them this really eloquent rendition. And then CBS only includes 30 seconds of his explanation.
3: You know something? It's even worse than that. It's even worse than that. They sent one guy to interview him The first guy. All right. And they looked at his interview and he said. You're making them look too good. We gotta send somebody else in there. So they dumped that interview completely and they sent in Mike Wallace, who's a much more hard-nosed type of interviewer. And they said, We're we're gonna send Wallace to interview him. And then you're right, they cut that one to about four minutes on the on the CBS special. All right. But I'm sure you're are you are you aware of what went on with that CBS special? Well, it was right. a it
1: was a four-hour special, right? And they were telling some of the people involved in it that like they were going to get their sentences reduced. They were telling people that like, cause they interviewed like people that Jim Garrison had put away.
3: Well, well, they, okay. Be, the, I got the story from a guy who worked from CBS and he stole documents out of CBS. All right. Which he couldn't reveal. And, and so after he passed away, okay. They fell into my possession. All right. What happened on that is that, The lower level guys like Daniel Shore, they wanted to, and Les Mitchley, they wanted to do a real investigation of the Kennedy case. They said, you know, instead of these stupid experiments by the FBI, why don't we really do real experiments? Why don't we do a real investigation? And and if you can believe it, they actually suggested, let's put the Warren Commission on trial. All right. Let's make them defend their case. All right. And so when this got up to the top level of Stanton and Paley, all right, they essentially said, nope. They they sent Midgley and another guy out to California. They talked to two high level of CBS attorneys and said, what you should do is put the critics on trial. All right. And so this, of course, sent the message. Then they bribed Midgley. They gave Midgley the top editing, the top editor job at, C, at the CBS Nightly News, and they got in contact with the White House, and they made his wife the, in the Bureau of Consumer Affairs, his fiance. She got that job. And so Midgley now went along with this new script, okay, that we're going to put the critics on trial. And nobody would have ever known this. Nobody would have ever known this. You know, unless Roger, the late Roger Feynman stole those documents, he knew he was going to get fired because he was writing memos to the upper level saying, look, we're breaking all of our rules on this show. You know, we got John McCoy as our secret consultant, and you're not going to tell the public that John McCoy is your secret consultant. All right. And so he knew he was going to get fired. So he stayed night after night. And stole these documents out of CBS, and got them. Really, and, and that's how we got the whole story about how that show, how a bureaucracy can really, you know, what, what, what's that great line that I think Upton Sinclair said? It's very hard to make a guy understand a concept if his paycheck depends on him not understanding it. <laughs> that, that's what this was. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, and it's and it's really wild. They, I mean. Just for that special, they like interviewed a lot of people that uh, Garrison had put away, which is if, if you're going like on, on any and then said, you know, oh, well, Garrison bribed us to say that, you know, like this or that. But if you're going to interview people that are in that are in a prison uh, about a DA, like the worst thing you could possibly do is interview the people that they put away that probably have, you know, a, a grudge against them for that.
5: Well, that, that was the big thing uh, the media went after Garrison for, and, and this comes up in uh, the movie, Oliver Stone's JFK, and I don't know if, if Jim can comment on, on it, but uh, one of the, the big accusations is that it was all driven by, uh, you know, Jim Garrison being homophobic, and you know, that that's always been the smear against Garrison. <laughs> no,
3: this, is, this is so ridiculous, you know, Uh di- the, the, the whole idea of this, okay, is, is 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 just utterly ridiculous because I've been through all of Garrison's files, okay? I, I actually had them way back in the 1990s. And Did you get
5: those from Jasper, by the way? I thought you, you met you, Jasper at one point about the
3: documents. Actually, actually, the older brother, Lion, okay, gave them to me, okay? Lion gave them to me. And uh, we spent... Like did you ever get to incapacitated? He was literally had to stay in bed. Okay. Wow. And, and he had to have like a nurse around him because he wouldn't, he was in such bad shape. All right. But I had all of his files at that time. Uh, th- there's nothing in there about any of this. And in fact, you know, he did not even bring up the fact that Clay Shaw was a homosexual during the entire trial, which of course would have helped him because it would help establish a relationship between him and Ferry, but he
0: never brought it up
3: at all, period, you know? And of course, Shaw's lawyers themselves knew, and this is really the worst part of it. These guys knew that Shaw was lying, okay? They, They found out about his CIA association because they begged for help from the Central Intelligence Agency. They knew that Fairy knew Shaw and they knew Shaw was lying about it. It didn't matter to them. It was simply, you know, a, a winner-take-all kind of uh, of game. That's the way they looked at it. it was yeah, and their relationship.
1: One of the most insane um things that Garrison talks about in On The Trail of the Assassins is the fact that the CIA literally had planted like flooded people. And it's interesting that Oliver Stone doesn't bring us up within, you know, the JFK movie, like um. That he found out later that like a bunch of people that had worked for his uh for the investigation were in fact CIA plants, like including the guy that he had copying documents, including the guy that he had going around. He was paying this guy a shitload of money to go around um, investigating leads, and the guy was like coming back with nothing because the guy was a CIA asset and had told them, "Hey, I'm a former CIA asset," and uh and and you know they fired me for drinking. And then he even called the CIA and like you know had some. Back and forth with some guy, where he's like, "Look, I got a job now, I, and I'm doing better." And the guy's like, "Oh, like good." Like in front of Jim Garrison and in front of his team, because he wanted to show that he had this former CIA connection. And of course, that guy and several other guys within the investigation turned out to be CIA assets. Still,
3: yes, that's 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 true. Okay, there was Garrison's investigation was infiltrated almost from the beginning, and in fact, the first guy. That he sent to interview Richard Case Nagel, who Garrison said was the most important witness in the Kennedy case. He turned out to be a CIA agent. Okay, William Martin was his name. All right, and 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 Nagel understood this. Okay, and he said, "I'm not going to cooperate anymore." Okay, I think I know who this guy really is. Right, and but there are a whole slew of them. You know, the most yeah. famous one being William Wood or or Bill Boxley. Yeah, and I, and I
1: believe it was, um, if I'm not mistaken, it was Mark Lane, right, that was working with them as a, as a journalist that came in for a day and pointed out that William Wood was a, um, was a CIA agent, like, figured it out within, like, uh, within you know, a few hours. And then they did the thing where they, they called him from the house and they were like, hey, could you come over here? We need to talk to you. And he fled. And then they, uh, <laughs> and then they went to the apartment and the apartment had never even been, uh, like,
3: you know, nobody was even living in the apartment. Right. Th- that's actually one of the best scenes in that whole book. Yeah. He describes mm-hmm. going to that apartment and showing the, the landlord, the guy's name. Cause no, we, we, we don't have that person here. Well, no, because- they, they did. They had the person, he was there, came in for the first
1: time, would give them money every month. for That's like, it. That, left, yeah. That's yeah, it. Left his <laughs> left shirt. Cause I, I just finished, uh, listening to the audiobook of it and I was enthralled by it. It's an amazing book. But like they he the guy just left a shirt, like a like
3: a like a folded shirt on the bed and never came back.
5: <laughs>
3: yeah, then that, that was it. He had one shirt in the whole apartment. Okay, when he said it was neatly cleaned and pressed. It was just hanging there and, and that was it. All right. <laughs> and on when they tried to get him to come over to the office. All right, Lou Ivon told me this story all right he says okay i'll be down he didn't show up ivan calls him again i'll be down he doesn't show up ivan calls him for the third time all right and he says this time jim he started laughing into the phone and he said lou tell big jim we're coming after him with it all okay and, and they did you know and they did they did right yeah. so that's that was an example and by way, let, let me just put the ending to that story when that happened garrison decided that this is it he called in all the badges to all the volunteers that had come down into his office okay and they he was not going to do that anymore he was only going to go with the professional staff that he had there and all those people got turned away and 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 that was it it was it ended up being in my opinion garrison should have never done that in the first place okay he should have never opened his doors and taken these people you know in yeah
1: um so i'm, I'm gonna try to wrap this up by um 11 30 um because i got tooth surgery yesterday and shouldn't be up insanely late but um so I, I wanted to get everyone's thoughts, I guess, uh, you know, concluding on this about, you know, who, who do you think? I mean, do you buy into the Oliver Stone um, definition or the Oliver Stone theory about who uh, killed JFK, the CIA? Or do you think that? Um, I don't know. I wanted to get everyone's thoughts one, one at a time on it. Uh, J.G.?
3: In, in the upcoming documentary, OK, which I worked on. All right, um, what I think uh, the film, there's a two-hour version and a four-hour version. The two-hour version is pretty much done, OK? And then they're finishing off the four-hour version. All right, what what Oliver decided to go with was a combination of the CIA and the Pentagon, all right? And the, the character that really interested him uh, was Admiral George Berkeley. Because Berkeley, I'm sure you guys know, was JFK's personal physician. And he was the only doctor who was at both Parkland and both at Bethesda. All right. So he was in a very good situation to understand what was going on. That afternoon, that afternoon, Berkeley told someone that Kennedy was killed with a shot to the temple. And that's where Malcolm Kilduff in that famous picture of him going like this, that's where he got the information from. And Chet Huntley broadcast the very same information a few minutes after Kilduff said it. And then when Berkeley went to be interviewed by the Kennedy Library, the interviewer asked him, he said, do you agree with the Warren Commission's description of how Kennedy was killed or something like that and Berkeley said I'd rather not talk about that Berkeley signed the Kennedy death certificate which put the back wound at the level of T3 which is where it was in the shirt and the jacket about five and a half inches down from Kennedy's collar and he signed that all right? also the face sheet that I think Boswell put together, if you remember, that shows the back wound at about five and a half or six inches down from the collar. The copy in the Warren Commission does not have Berkeley's signature on it; they erased it. But Berkeley's signature is on the original, so he had to have known something was really wrong, you know, with this with this whole cover-up about Kennedy's assassination. So that's one of the characters. That we concentrated on in this uh, in this version. Also, if you're running out of time, let me just mention there's one other guy that we decided to explore, a guy named Robert Knudsen, okay, who's an utterly fascinating character that very few people know about, but who probably took a separate set of autopsy photos that night. Okay, Kuba. Uh,
2: so who do i think did it i mean Um, you know
1: what what organizations do you think did it or what you know do you buy into oliver stone's theory in the at least in jfk
2: um all i know is that a lone gunman theory is highly implausible and there had to have been some kind of collusion within the security apparatus Um, I don't know the exact constellation of who was in on it and who wasn't, but, um, I'm, I'm certainly persuaded that there's uh, more to it than, um, than a lone disgruntled, um, you know, proto incel taking a couple of pot shots from, um, upper story window.
1: Who didn't and, really seem disgruntled, I mean, in any of the, you know, like, like he probably proclaimed that he was a patsy. Like, there, there's no record of um, Oswald ever really saying anything negative about Kennedy. But
2: Also, also, the CIA Proto incel in Marina recently, Oswald, man. And he was pretty uh, pretty angry in those. Like, you should have seen his uh, Discord profile.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he, he wrote on Reddit. He had all these Reddit posts. You know, mm-hmm. Lee, I'm going to kill again. JFK
2: uh, well, just the, for the, the LULZs. Thing, though,
1: the insane thing, though, is I think that if the CIA or, or the deep state wanted to create something like this now, the, the trail that they would have to leave wouldn't be with an actual person going around. You can now actually leave like a, a Internet trail where they could mm-hmm. be like, oh, well, we found his, you know, he was on Reddit. He was on, like, that is actually kind of insane that you like you don't even have to have like a fake Oswald because there's like, you know, three possible like. Agent Oswald, that didn't even look like him.
2: And if you think about it, the only thing that limits the ability to do that is the existence of another um, adversarial agency that could checkmate you, right? That yeah. could prove that you faked it. Yeah. And...
3: You, you, you know, there were two other Patsies, don't you? One in That's Tampa fun. and one in Chicago. Okay. Thomas Arthur Vallee was the one in Chicago. That plot was planned for, I think, November the 2nd. And Gilberto Lopez was the one in Tampa. That plot was planned for November the 18th. We talk about them in the film. All right. So well, I, did I one look of, at um... it this way. I look at this way. There was no way Kennedy was getting out of
5: 1963. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I was going to say real quick, Jim, wasn't there one of his, I think it was Abraham Bolden was one of uh, JFK's Secret Service guys who talked about these other plots.
0: Right. Yeah.
3: Abraham Bolden actually tried to black, squeal. Go, go ahead. No, he was the first
1: black Secret Service agent that ever um, watched over right. a president too, and was institutionalized because of because of the fact that he was, you know, talking about like he because of the fact that he even offered to testify in front of the Warren Commission. Yeah, they were able to
3: just throw him into an institution. He wanted to squeal about the Chicago plot because he knew it had been covered up. Okay. And so what happened is when they heard he was doing this, they framed him, okay? So he would be in jail at during the time of the Warren Commission, all right? But Bolden knew what was going on, okay, with the whole Chicago plot, you know, which by the way, what's so interesting about the Chicago plot is it's so close to what happened in Dallas. So in other words, if it wouldn't have been covered up because it was, you had these, uh, you know, these snipers coming in, staying in, in an apartment building. You had this high building. Uh, I think this one was on the third story. You had this ex-Marine, okay, who had been at a base in Japan. Okay, the profile fits Oswald. So in other words, if that wouldn't have been hushed up, they would have probably been able to prevent the the, the way the plot went down in Dallas.
1: Yeah. Um, JG? So- okay,
5: so with with me and the assassination, <clears throat> I'm a bit odd because I think most people are interested on what happened on November 22nd or November. Yeah. Uh, on the day of the assassination. And for me, I've always been more interested in the writings of say a Peter Dill Scott who wrote deep politics and JFK. I'm very interested in the things that went on. I'll leading never up be to on your show again.
3: <laughs>
5: <laughs> well, I, you, you have to admit, I love, I love, uh, I loved, well, I, I love uh, that one book, um, and I, I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, but uh, John Newman's book, JFK in Vietnam, that's a book that has fascinated me for a long time. The and 2017 I, I think it, version. Right, right. Well, I, I think uh, I, I was talking about this before. That's influenced – did that influence Oliver Stone's movie at all? Well, no. He, uh, Oliver
3: hired him. Right. Uh, Oliver hired John to be a, a main consultant, on, and he actually wrote some of the scenes about getting out of Vietnam. And he actually has a bit part in the movie. Mm-hmm. He got a SAG card to play a bit part in the movie. That's how much uh, uh Oliver relied upon him. Whatever you want to say about the movie, all the stuff about Vietnam is accurate and it turned
5: out to be true. All right. Well that, that that's that's sort of what interests me about the Kennedy assassination. I feel like there is a definite quibono uh with the Kennedy assassination. And that's sort of the trill I like to follow, um, in regards to the movie itself, I just wanted to state, you know, to me, the movie is really interesting. I've always, you guys know, I've always been a big fan of horror movies. There is like an element of, of the horrific in Oliver Stone's JFK. I really love the beginning with, uh, Sally Kirkland as the Rose Cherami character who is saying, you know, they're going to kill the president. uh It's a really, it it has some really chilling moments, you know, that the Joe Pesci breakdown scene, and I think it's a great film. And I think it does raise very legitimate questions about the Kennedy assassination and what we've been told about it.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, Andy, sorry, you haven't gotten to talk as much as.
5: No, that's okay. Um,
4: I I just want to make sure I tell the story before we finish this real quickly. Um, First time I saw JFK was my freshman year in high school, where we watched it in my history class. Um, it's not as
1: good I, I, as Pascal's, <laughs> Pascal's uh explanation about going to the theater and watching it when it first
4: came Yeah, no. <laughs> but like like it was dragged out over weeks because we were watching it like a, uh right before a break. Um uh I don't even remember much about the uh whys, but I also remember um uh going to uh Dallas because cause I didn't live that far from from downtown Dallas and going to where uh Oswald supposedly was and um you know they have like a little museum thing there so i got to see that and it was like right across the street from where they filmed part of logan's run so it's kind of surreal if you actually go there today uh and, and you're a bit of a movie buff so it's like jfk meets logan's run for a moment there um and uh but anyways um who who killed jfk well obviously uh just like the rolling Stones said it was you and me yeah we i, I saw those
3: <laughs>
1: All right. Well, I'm gonna wrap this up because uh, my tooth is starting to throb. Um, I got my, my my first tooth that I've ever gotten pulled pulled yesterday, and then was like, "Oh God! I hope that I'm able to do these streams today because I was really looking forward <laughs> to it." Thank God I am. I was. I did. <laughs> um, well done. All right. Um, Jim, will you come back soon and, and, and talk about more of the stuff on a on a stream? Uh, I want to get more into depth. Sure.
3: On Sure. Um, I, I don't think I'll, I'm going to be really busy probably in October. Okay. Okay. But I can, but if you want to do it in, in sometime this month, I can probably do it. Yeah. Well, we're talking about
1: Platoon uh, on the, on September 28th, I think, if you wanted to come for that. Um, September the 28th? Yeah. Is that
5: what you said? Yeah. That's my birthday.
1: All right. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry. Then, then,
5: then... <laughs> hey, J- Jim, real quick too. Uh, is, is there any word on when? Uh, JFK revisited through the looking glass will be coming out or uh, I mean, is that still a ways off?
3: No, it's, 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 it's still uh, up at kind of a, well, it's sold in Scandinavia. It's sold in France it's sold in Germany, sold in Spain, sold in Italy, sold in Germany, sold in Australia and New Zealand. And it's being sell. It's going to sell in England probably this month, but I can't tell you about the United States. Okay. All right.
1: So get a well,
6: VPN.
1: Thanks. Thanks everyone for coming on. Um, just going to say left
3: is no, done. If you want me to come on on my birthday, uh, we're going to have to pre-tape it. There, there's <laughs> yeah. going to have to be a cake. It's going
2: to have to be like. No, we'll, we'll, figure out,
3: we'll, figure out a we'll
1: figure out a different day in, in September. Okay. Um, I, I, I'm going to do. So I'm having the left flank bets on and we're going to do top three, um, top three war movie, like anti-war movies, platoon full metal jacket apocalypse. Now we're going to, Get through all of those on the twenty eighth, which is something I'm really excited for. Um, So, yeah, so I'm just going to say, Left is best.